I heard today is like there's some kind of football game going on today. And, um, you know, not being a sports fan or an athlete or anything, you know, I just heard and somebody gave me a story that I don't know if this will apply or not, but it has something to do with the Super Bowl. And it also relates to, uh, um, and it reminds us of the cost of commitment. Apparently, a gentleman by the name of Bob receives a free ticket to the Super Bowl from his boss. Unfortunately, when he arrives at the stadium, he realizes that his seat is located in the nosebleed section in the far corner of the, of the end zone, and he can't see very much. But about halfway through, he does see that there is a seat on the 50-yard line that's been empty throughout the first quarter. So he winds his way, and he makes his way down to this particular seat. Before he sits down, he asks the gentleman sitting there, he says, Sir, do you mind, um, is anybody sitting in a seat? I notice it's been empty. And he said, no, actually, no one will be sitting in it. You can sit in it if you'd like. He said, no one's sitting in a seat. He goes, well, actually, it's my wife's seat. And, um, you know, since 1969, we've gone to Super Bowls together. But unfortunately, um, she died and she couldn't make it. And he goes, wow. He goes, you know, is it, couldn't you have invited a friend or anything? And he said, well, you know, I just didn't think it would be right because they're all at our funeral today. It, it, could, it could have been a Mother's Day story, right? I'm moving towards sensitivity. It could have been a Mother's Day story. I thought, no, there's just no way. That's all right. Speaking of football, um, when Lou Little was the uh, football coach at Georgetown University, he had on his squad a player that wasn't that good, but uh, the coach liked him because he had a great attitude. He had a great work ethic. He never complained, and he did what he was told to do, but he wasn't talented enough to actually play in the game. And uh, the thing that the coach liked most about him was is that he saw that he had a special relationship with his dad. And every time his dad would come to campus, he would see this player and his dad walking arm in arm uh, throughout the campus. And, and, and it touched him. It was, it was uh, something that moved him to the point where he really appreciated what this kid was all about. But uh, before a big game against Fordham, he had gotten a phone call. This kid did and found out that his dad had had a heart attack and died. And so this young man went home, went to the funeral, and for the next three days was there, came back just in time before the big game against Fordham, and he went up to his coach, and he said, Coach, he goes, I have a special request. I've never asked any favor of you at all, and you know I've worked hard for you. He said that I'd like to start today in this game because it's something I know my dad would have really appreciated. And so the coach, being sensitive to the situation, said, Okay, I'm going to let you start, but I'm just going to keep in there for a couple of plays because this is a critical game for us. So the coach puts him in the game, and sure enough, the kid's in there a couple plays, and the coach decides to leave him in. He plays 15 minutes of each quarter, 60 minutes of the most inspired football this coach has ever seen any of his players ever play. When he came out of the game, he said, man, you played like an All-American today. What, what in the world got into you? He said, well, coach, you know, my dad just died this past week, and you've seen us together many times. You've mentioned to, to me how special it was to see me walk arm in arm. Well, the reason I've never told you was is because he was blind. He said, and today was the first day that he got to see me play. And, you know, what's fascinating about the story is his desire to please someone he loved, someone not visibly present, made all the difference in the world to his performance. You know, in a lot of ways, it reminded me of the Apostle Paul, because he was a man who lived, he fought, and he died totally sold out to pleasing God, a God that he got to see on a few occasions, but a God that none of us ever get to see in person, but one day we shall see face to face. He was motivated to serve an invisible God, 
you know, I can't help but think about the words that Jesus shared with Thomas, who said that he would not believe that the Lord Jesus Christ had risen from the dead until he saw him personally, until he felt his wounds, until he touched him and saw that he really had risen from the dead. And if you remember the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, he said, you know what, you believe because you've seen, but blessed are those who come after you who believe without having seen. And I thought about that in light of serving and and pleasing, living for, dying for an invisible God who, though we haven't seen him face to face, the evidence of his existence is overwhelming. See, because Paul served a risen Savior, he didn't allow the well-meaning pleadings of loyal and loving friends, you know, arguments that appealed to his desire for self-comfort. Uh, even self-preservation to sidetrack him from obeying God and following his leading in his life. If you remember the last time we were together, Paul was convinced that God was leading him to Jerusalem. And he was going to go there regardless of what price had to be paid in order to fulfill that, that obedience in his heart to what God was leading him to do. And that's where we find him. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 21. We find him in the city of Jerusalem and we find that some of the warnings that were given to him were about to come to fruition. In Acts chapter 21, starting with verse 17, we read these words. Luke writes, And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. It says, And now the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. And after he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they began glorifying God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you, that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. What then? What is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Therefore do this that we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take them and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses in order that they may shave their heads and all will know that there is nothing to the things which they have been told about you but that you also, that yourself also walk orderly keeping the law. But concerning the Gentiles who have believed, we wrote, having decided that they should abstain from meat sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what is strangled and from fornication. Then Paul took the men and the next day purifying himself along with them went into the temple giving notice of the completion of the days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. And when the seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, upon seeing him in the temple, began to stir up all the multitude and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law and this place. And besides, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place." For they had previously seen Trophimus and and the Ephesian in the city with him. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. And all the city was aroused and the people rushed together. And taking hold of Paul, they dragged him out of the temple and immediately the doors were shut. And while they were seeking to kill him, a report came up to the commander of the Roman cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. And at once he took along some soldiers and centurions and ran to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander came up and took hold of him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. And he began asking who he was and what he had done. But among the crowd, some were shouting one thing and some another. And when he couldn't find out the facts on account of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. 
And when he got to the stairs, it so happened that he was carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people kept following behind, crying out, away with him. You know, in this passage, it reminds us uh, particularly what has brought us to this point is the book of Acts reveals many great aspects, many aspects of the apostles, uh, the apostles' character. And some of them that stand out is that he was a powerful, clear preacher of the word of God. He was a man of great learning and great wisdom. We're told that he was bold, as we've seen in many occasions. He was fearless in the face of some of the fiercest opposition, which we find that he's, that he's uh, been opposed in this particular case again. And uh, he, pres- he possessed a remarkable self-discipline, and he, hold- he held strong to unwavering commitments, as we've already seen. Just getting to Jerusalem, you know, he was, conv- he was committed to accomplishing what he believed that God was leading him to do. He had strong, deep convictions, and they were unwavering. You know, he didn't sell out quickly. He didn't get detoured or, or deterred from what it is that God was leading him to do. You know, this character that we see that, you know, that drove him. You know, he was inspired. Others were inspired to follow his godly uh, lifestyle and to imitate him. You know, and, and he had this driving passion to live to please God. And what's fascinating about it is there's one thing that sometimes we miss that we're going to catch in this particular account. And that he was also a very humble man which says a lot about his character because he was a man who could have boasted, but yet he chose not to. You know, he, he called himself at one time of Hebrew of Hebrews. You know, when we read the book of Philippians, for example, we know that he was a member of the elite Pharisees. He was a student of one of the greatest Jewish rabbinical teachers of all time, uh, Gamaliel. We saw that in Acts chapter 5. Uh, that was someone he studied under, and only a handful of people were chosen to do such. He advanced in Judaism beyond many of his contemporaries, his countrymen. He was extremely zealous for the law. Um, you know, a lot of things that we see about his heart never didn't really change as far as his character was concerned. I mean, this guy, when he believed something, was right, man, he gave it 100%. And as we saw it, he was the apostle, even after his dramatic conversion, he was apostle of the Gentiles. He also spearheaded the spread of the gospel throughout the Roman Empire, establishing many churches that we've seen along the way. I mean, the guy had a lot of accomplishments, and he could have boasted about many of those things, not to mention the fact that Jesus Christ appeared to him, the risen Savior, appeared to him personally on several occasions. And not only did he appear to him personally, but he was also taken before the very presence of God. It says that he was caught up into paradise, into the the, the third paradise or heaven itself. And the things that he saw were so inexpressible that he wasn't permitted by God to even share what it was that he saw. But you know that that vision, that glimpse of heaven was the driving force and motivation behind everything that he did. Because he knew what he believed was true. I know whom I have believed in. And I know that he's able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that very day of judgment. Man, this guy was fired up. And yet at the same time, he was a very humble man. And in this particular passage, we'll see his humility is clearly seen. And it's also something that's essential for every one of us who claim to love the Lord Jesus Christ and to follow him and live a life pleasing to God. For the Bible tells us that, you know, the Bible says God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the perfect time. You know, humble yourselves. It's an action that we have to take ourselves. Have this attitude, we're told, have this attitude in yourself that was also in Christ Jesus, who humbled himself, taking on the appearance of a man, 
being fashioned into a man. And, and it says that he, he had this attitude in himself. He considered others more important than himself. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12, For consider him who endured such hostility from men. Consider him so that we don't grow weary and that we don't grow faint. Who endured this hostility from men. Who, who endured the pain and despised the shame for the joy that was set before him. And that was accomplishing the will of the Father and bringing salvation to those who would believe in Him and trust in Him as their Savior. And so when we see this, this attitude of humility in this passage, we see firsthand the humility of Paul upon his arrival in Jerusalem demonstrated in, in both his actions and his attitude and in a very stressful environment that we just read about. Paul's arrival in Jerusalem also marks the end of his missionary journeys. And uh, he would soon be arrested, as we see. He would be put in chains. And, the, and he tells the, the, the Ephesian believers that he was an ambassador for Christ in chains from that day forward. And that's what we'll see at this turning point in the book of Acts throughout the rest of our study together, that Paul is a prisoner. But God used him mightily, even imprisoned, for his sake. And so as we look at this, we're going to see several things. All of this leads up to the events of his arrest, which we'll, we'll track from here on out. But the bottom line is the first thing that we see that reflects the humility of Paul is that we see the communion that he has with, with those who he comes into presence with as far as Jerusalem is concerned. If you go back to the beginning of this passage that we read in verse 17, we're told that, um, And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. As Paul arrived in Jerusalem, things started out on a very positive note. You know, for starters, he made it. We saw how difficult a journey it was just to get there. He had to be relieved that he finally made it, accomplished what he believed God was leading him to do. Uh, he made it. And, and if you recall, it was very difficult travel because everywhere that he went that he stopped and he came into the lives of other believers, there was a bond that was developed and there was a tearful separation or goodbye that they had to go through. It's like so good to see you again, but you know what? I'm committed to do what God's called me to do and it means that I've got to do what God calls me to do even if it means leaving you behind. And there were many tearful goodbyes along the way. There was also many warnings from his friends. Look, man, don't go to Jerusalem because, you know, we just don't, we got a gut feeling that this isn't good for you. And that gut feeling was demonstrated even further when Agabus came and prophesied to him, taking Paul's belt, tying himself up and saying, hey, this is what the Spirit says is going to happen to the guy, speaking of Paul, when he gets to Jerusalem. And sure enough, we're going to see exactly that that happened. But, but, but God didn't tell him not to go. All God did was warn him that when he went, he'd know what to expect. And you know what? That's something I appreciate about the Word of God and I appreciate about our personal relationship with God who discloses to us all things. You know, Jesus said that I'm going to go away, but don't worry about it. In John chapter 14, don't, don't get all shook up about it. Don't be so deeply concerned about it. In fact, he said, let not your heart be troubled. Don't, don't sweat it. I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do ahead of time. He said that he calls us friends because he discloses to us all that, that he has to tell us about what to expect. And so what he's saying to Paul is he says to all of us, listen, expect persecution. And, there, and the logic that he used is very simple. The world hated me. The world put me to death. The world will hate you. And the world will persecute you as well for following and believing in me. But you know what? Don't let your heart be troubled because I've overcome this world. See, so many of us don't do much for the kingdom of God because we're afraid. And Paul had to encourage Timothy and he said, God didn't give us a spirit of timidity or fear. God is with us. 
Matthew 28, the Great Commission, go into all the world, you know, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, make disciples of all nations, and teach them to observe the things I've commanded you. And you know what? And don't be afraid, for I am with you even to the edge of the age, end of the age. No matter where you go, that's where I am. You know, if you look at the, 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 the great men and women of Scripture, Hebrews chapter 11 is a great example. They were men and women who, you know what, set aside personal comfort. And certainly set aside personal apprehensions and fear. And they were just wholeheartedly sold out to pleasing God. They just trusted Him. You know, I don't know where this is going. All you did is reveal this much information to me. But that's enough information for me to act upon. And that's this first step that I'll take. And I'll trust you when we get to the next step. That you'll be there to continue to lead us and guide us and direct us. But that's step number one. See, we walk by faith and not by sight. There is not one of us here that God has laid out in intricate detail every step of the way that he wants us to travel in our obedience with him. We've got a general outline, and this is pretty good. I mean, you know, it doesn't get any better than this. Hey, don't be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places, and that's where I'm going. I'm preparing a place for you, and when we're together again, you know what? Nothing will ever separate us. And, you know, so that's what we have to look forward to. Don't, don't worry about the world. I've overcome the world. Don't be fearful. And this is exactly, Paul was motivated because he understood the bigger picture, even though sometimes the chapters of the book can get really uncomfortable. But as we see as he got here, it says that, you know what? He was greeted by the brethren. The believers who were there at the church of Jerusalem greeted him, were told that they received him gladly. Paul and his companions had similar greetings everywhere that they, they went. For the most part, they were received gladly. Uh, they were grateful to receive the, the, the church here at Jerusalem, was certainly grateful to receive the cash that, uh, that they had brought to them from the Gentile churches as a peace offering to provide unity to the church, but also at the same time to help the needs of the, of the poor that were in Jerusalem. So you know they received them gladly. Uh, you know, it's nothing like, hey, I'll tell you what, you want to come bring me cash? I'll receive you gladly. Uh, you know, it's just kind of the way it is. And uh, so he received them gladly, but not only did he receive them gladly, secondly, they rejoiced in what God had accomplished in Paul's ministry. You know, as I was studying this passage, the first thing that I was reminded of, I had just taught a Bible study in one of our, in one of our other groups, and, and, uh, and, we, and it was on Luke chapter 19. And the words of Zacchaeus were told that Zacchaeus received the Lord Jesus Christ gladly. Wow, that's good stuff. You know, received them with open arms, welcomed them into his life and into his heart. And these people received them gladly. But what's interesting about this reception of this communion of believers is that it also demonstrates some humility on the part of the Apostle Paul because I want you to see something that stood out to me as I was reading through it. We were told that Paul began to recite to them one by one all that God had accomplished among the Gentiles through his ministry. One by one. Can you imagine the humility of a person who, in the position that he was in, and as many people as came to faith in Christ, and the churches that were established, the Apostle Paul viewed people as human beings and not statistical data. They were real people with real problems and real lives, and they had come to a real relationship with the God who had made them through faith in Christ. And he never lost sight of people in the process. So often it's so easy to lose sight of people because of numbers. And we start to feel like we're a statistic rather than an individual. And we've got to do everything that we can as, as, as individuals to make sure that people in our life 
never feel like they're just one of many, many people. That they're the most, when you're with them, they're the most important person in your life at that moment in time. You know, I know there's a struggle oftentimes in families and husbands and wives and children and all of that in those relationships because we're so, we're, we're so scattered as far as our, our attention is concerned. Uh, and yet at the same time, I want to encourage you that wherever you are, that's the most important moment of your life. There could be a million things going on all around you, but while you're there, you're there. When you come to listen to the words of God as he instructs you through, through the book, through the Bible. My challenge to you is to be here in this moment in time. We all have busy lives. There's all a million things going on. We can be thinking about, you know, people coming over for the game or planning this or what do I got to do to pick up and where are we going to go and something I've got to do on Tuesday and then I got something else on Friday. And, and I know how it is because I'm no different than any one of you. There's a struggle always to, to have that undivided attention. But all I want to encourage you is that if the Apostle Paul, with all the accomplishments that you could put on his resume, which are accurate ones, by the way, uh, compared to like what we see happening all around us, every time I pick up the newspaper, somebody else isn't you know, doing this, that, or the other thing anymore because they didn't do the things they said they did. But, you know, but Paul, he did what God records that he did. And yet at the same time, when he was with people, he was with them. He, he poured out his life to them. And we know from his letters, he rolled up his sleeves. And one of the best examples of that is found in the letter that he wrote to the Thessalonians. And turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, just to get a little taste of the kind of man he was when it comes to humility. He wasn't the great Apostle Paul. He rolled up his sleeves. He got busy. He was on the front lines and he was serving with others. He wasn't serving from a committee. He wasn't serving from a distance. He knew what he was doing because he was actively doing it. And there's a lot to be said for that when it comes to ministering to other people. In 1 Thessalonians 2, we read these words, For you yourselves know, he's saying, hey, you know. What I'm about to tell you, you know because you experienced it firsthand, brethren, that our coming to you wasn't in vain. But after we had already suffered, been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we still had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in in amidst much opposition. For exhortation doesn't come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. He lived to please God. He lived to please an audience of one. For we never came with flattering speech, and you know that, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor do we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we may have exerted such authority. But we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children, having thus a fond affection for you. We were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our very lives, for you had become very dear to us. See, Paul didn't think he was above such interaction. But he followed in his Lord's footsteps, who was involved in the lives of people. I was thinking as, as I was studying this that it's so important for us to never get so tunnel visioned that we forget the people around us. That you, and even in this group, that you never get so tunnel visioned that we rush to our seat. 
and we don't say hello to the person next to us or greet somebody as if we genuinely are glad to see them. To say hello and introduce yourself and tell them your name and you know, try to get to know them. And I know that's why we have small groups and we encourage that. But at the same time, you know what? It wouldn't hurt to be cordial even in a larger group setting. You know, I met, I met, I met a couple yesterday. Linda and I were at, um, having lunch. And I met a couple that Linda said, oh, they, they come to Kindred and they were sitting at a distance. And we said hello and said, hi, you know, you know how long have you been coming? And, oh, about 10 years. So, oh, well, you know, my name's Chuck. <laughs> and I saw him again this morning, you know. We've got to stop meeting like this. Um, but, it was, you know, it was just like, wow, you know. I, because, I, and I know, Linda, she knows everybody. It's like, y'all run out, you know. Only two or three of you ever come up here. You know, everybody else runs out the back. Because you're like afraid that, you know, I might have something more to say to you. But... <laughs> But the reality of it is, is that, you know, here was Paul. Think about this for a minute. One by one? I mean, all the places like, you know, well, we had uh, 27 first-time decisions for Jesus today. We had 22 nine-recommitments. And it's like, well, who are these people? What do we know about them? You know, have we gotten involved in a, in a Bible study or a discipleship group? What, what, I mean, what do we know other than, you know, the numbers that are there? Could you imagine? I don't know how long this took. But Paul, man, he started going on about, you know, each of these people had an individual story. And the Lord working in their life and where God had brought them from and where they were and how they came to faith in Christ and what their life was like afterwards to the degree that he knew and understood in the time that he spent together. You know, and he brought people with him. Trophimus he brought with him as Exhibit A. Here's, here's one such person. And Secundus, you know, here's another such person. And, and I brought him with me to be not only witnesses of what I'm telling you to be true, but also examples of what God is doing out there in the world that you haven't seen, but I've seen firsthand. And he's like, man, he shared the amazing things that he's done. You know, can you imagine? I mean, oh, let me tell you what happened in Ephesus, man. You should have seen the riot. Oh, my. There were 25,000 people all chanting, great as Artemis, great as Artemis. I mean, it was like, oh, it's incredible. And, you know, the reason for it, they were scared of the gospel. Because, you know, the union over there, the silversmith union, they got all upset because no one was buying any of their trinkets anymore because they'd come to faith in Christ and said, we don't need to worship idols. We know the God who created everything. Oh, you should have been there. <laughs> that was great. You know, can you imagine he just went on every story one by one recounting what had happened. Oh, man, you should have seen it too. <laughs> you should have seen this guy, Eutychus is his name. Oh, you, you know, Eutychus. Everyone's going to remember Eutychus because I'm writing him down, you know. But this dude fell asleep up on the windowsill. Should have seen it. Fell right out. Broke his neck just like that, dead right on the spot. But hey, don't worry about it. You know, I just went down and, and God led me to go down. And I laid over him just like Elijah, just like Elijah. And, and, you know, and God healed him, raised him up from the dead. Man, you know what? You should have seen that audience then. They were listening to everything I had to say. It was great. Oh, man, talk about a word picture. Oh, those people left there that night just going, man, you missed church tonight. Well, anything happened? Nah, not much. I was like, man, you know, so he went through one by one. He began sharing everything that had taken place. I mean, it's just, it was awesome. You know, which pointed to the second aspect of his humility. And that was he said, oh, you know what? You should have seen what God was doing. You should have seen what God was doing among the Gentiles through his ministry. 
And you know what's fascinating is this. Is that God calls us to obedience. And while we're obedient to serve using the gifts that God has given us. The reality always is this. It's always God who's doing the work. And we can never get away from that. You should have seen what God is doing. Not me. That, that character trait of humility is demonstrated right here. He didn't take credit for anything. All he said was, I was just obedient to follow God's leading. And we'll see it in his defense before many people. He said, subsequently, I could not prove disobedient to the vision. I just couldn't do it. I had to be obedient. But make no mistake about it. God gets all the glory. You know, we're told that we are salt and light as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as others see our good work, our Father, who is in heaven, should get all the glory. Period. We do what we do because we have no choice but to be obedient. But as God uses us through that obedience, let us defer and deflect all the glory to Him. You know, these people got pumped up, man. They were excited. They were glorifying God because of the stories that he had told, man. It's like, whoa, man, that's exciting stuff. And yet at the same time, we run into what I would, cons- what I would, what I would call the old praise the Lord, but. Praise the Lord, but. Well, what's the but? Well, there's a concern. There's a concern here in verses 21. You notice that it's like, praise the Lord, man. They began glorifying God. They said, hey, you know what? Praise the Lord, but. You know what? You see, brother Paul, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. It was kind of like, hey, you know what? God's doing a great work with the Gentiles. Praise the Lord, but. You know what? God's doing a great work among the Jews too, brother. Don't ever forget that. And I got something that we need to share with you. We got a problem. There are many, the word thousands, many thousands is actually myriads upon myriads or thousands upon thousands. I mean, there were so many people that had come to faith. We know that even through our study in Acts, at one time 3,000, another time 5,000. I mean, it was just like, oh, it was just, you know, astronomical growth that God was causing. He said, and, and, but what he was saying was that there were many thousands who were zealous for the law. Now, they've been told about you, listen to this, that, they, that you are teaching. Notice, they have been told. It's kind of like, praise the Lord, but. I'm thinking this, even this caught Paul off guard. You know, it's kind of like, well, wait a minute, man, everything's wrong along good, but what happened here? Praise the Lord, but. Joy of the Jerusalem leaders was mixed with a concern. There was a potentially serious problem that had developed and one they needed Paul's help to overcome. The problem was... These thousands of Jewish believers had come to hear and they had been told. The word has been told or the phrase, I mean, it's the word that we get our English word catechism, which means to teach with repetition. These people were teaching with repetition that Paul had told the Gentiles to forsake Moses, not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. They believed that Paul was telling Gentiles to forsake Moses and the history of the law, not to circumcise their children, and also not walk according to the customs of the Old Testament. Saying that here was Paul, you know, a Pharisee of Pharisees, zealous for the law. They're saying that we have been told over and over again that everywhere you go, you're telling people to forsake Moses and the law of God. And that was just an outright lie. That wasn't true at all. He was, he was teaching the Gentiles that they did not have to become Jews in order to become Christians. 
that they could become believers in the Lord Jesus Christ without going through any other process but faith in Him and Him alone, repenting of sin, turning to Christ, putting their faith and trust in Him, in Him completely. But they never told, He never told anybody to forsake the law because, you know, the law was a tutor that led everybody to understanding their need for a Savior. And the law had a purpose and it was fulfilled in, the Lord and Je- in, in, in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That, that wasn't true at all. Which brings up, you know, an interesting story. It was a, a story was told of a, a lady who was on, in an eastern land who um, began to gossip about a neighbor. And she began to tell things about this neighbor that ultimately she found out were untrue. But this neighbor was hurt in the process of her gossiping. So she went to a wise old sage for advice and said, you know, what do I got to do to make this right? Because I've told the story about this woman, and I found out it's not true, and how do I undo this mess that I'm in? And he said, well, you go to the market and buy a chicken. And you take the chicken, and on your way home, you pluck the chicken along the route, and you just lay down the feathers as you go to your home. She thought, well, that's kind of weird, but she did it. And then he said, and come back the next day, and I'll tell you what else to do. So she goes back and says, I did what you, you told me to do. I, I bought a chicken. I plucked it. I you know, dropped the feathers. I, I got home, and you know, now what do I do? He said, now what I want you to do is I want you to go back along the same route, and I want you to pick up the feathers. So she goes, okay. So she went back the same route, and much to her dismay, there were hardly any feathers to be found. For over the course of the evening, the wind had blown them away. And she picked up three or four, and that's all that she had left. See, and the point that he was making to her is a point that we need to take to heart, and that's this. You know, there's no place in a Christian life for rumors and for gossip. Because once you start to share, if you find out what you're sharing is erroneous, you will never be able to undo that which you've done. There's no room for that. And now Paul finds himself at a point where he's got to deal with deliberate lies about him. And he has to figure out a way to undo all this. And you know what? We're going to find it's not going to be an easy thing to do. And so as they get together, there was a compromise situation or solution that's recommended by the leaders of the church. And what they said to him was, well, you know what? These people have been told that this is what you're telling them. Then what is to be done? They're going to hear that you're here. And I'm telling you what, when they hear you're here, they don't like you. And they're mad at you. They're angry with you for what you have been teaching. And I'll guarantee you, this place is going to get turned upside down. So, therefore, because of the problem that we have that was created by lies and innuendos and and gossip and rumors, therefore, we have to take some kind of action to try to get this resolved. And their action was, they said, do what we tell you to do, do this. Well, what did they tell them to do? Verse 23, do this that we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take them and purify yourself along with them. Pay their expenses in order that they may shave their heads. And all will know that there is things which they have which they have been told about you but that you yourself also walk orderly keeping the the law now if you remember in acts 15 at the jerusalem council they came to the conclusion that and don't forget that gentiles you know we reached a compromise they shouldn't eat anything any meat sacrificed to idols and from blood from which it's strangled or from fornication it's kind of like let's come up with some kind of compromise and this is where they are so they asked paul in essence to compromise to try to answer these rumors and lies about him And this is the game plan they come up with. 
So in Numbers chapter 6, you can read it on your own, but it had to do with these four men that had taken a vow, and they're saying, hey, pay for their vow, and we'll, that'll demonstrate to everybody that, man, you're still 100% sold on the law, that this is right. And, and the whole idea, I've got to believe, was distasteful to Paul because it was all based on allegations and lies, but he submitted to it. And the reason he submitted to it, he has already told us in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, is because he realized that there are times in your life where you have to compromise, not for the sake of the gospel, not for the sake of biblical truth, but to try to expose what's really going on. He loved his people. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew that I might win them. To those who are under the law as under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I may be all, by all means save some. And I do all things for the sake of the gospel, that I may become a fellow partaker or prisoner of it. The bottom line is he said, you know what? His desire to reach others for Christ often meant he would first have to clear away all real or perceived obstacles to expose the truth or root problem. Let me give you a personal illustration from from our life. Several years ago, when we started to work with the Rams ministry, uh, we were told, hey, you know what? This night's not a good night to meet. Okay, fine. What night's a good night? So you move it to another night. You know what? That time's not a good time to meet. Okay, fine. What time's a good time to meet? All, all, all I share with you is this. I mean, you know, if you're going to be in, involved in ministry, which all of us who know Christ, that's not an option. We all are to some degree or another. Um, you need to take the Gumby approach to life. You know, you better be as flexible as you can be. You know what I'm saying? You need to bend, but just don't break. You know, and so it was like no matter what hoop I was asked to jump through, okay, we'll change it. We'll do that. We'll do this. We'll do that. Whatever it was. And then I get guys come back to me and say, well, you know what? We, we need to do it this way. Okay. You know, sometimes you're exasperated by all of it, but you just go, hey, whatever, you know, because we're here to serve. And if that's a better time, then that's what we'll do. Blah, blah, blah. Finally, they come back with an objection that is going to be really difficult for me to accommodate. And one brother comes to me and says, Chuck, he goes, guys aren't coming because you're white. (laughs) That's a tough one to overcome. Because I'm white? Yeah, man, I know. I I was kind of hesitant because he was black. You know, the guy came to me and said, hey, you know what? I I just got to tell you, man, the brothers aren't coming because you're white. I said, all right. Well, you know, I can't do much about that. That's a tough one to overcome, right? But I said, hey, you know what? I got a friend who's working with UCLA right now. He's a black man. He loves Jesus Christ. He knows the word of God. And this guy, it would be great. I'll have him come and teach the Bible study. So we make all the arrangements, get him to come. And you guess what? The same guys still didn't come. It had nothing to do with me being white, although they thought that was a good one. Because it's like, try to wiggle your way out of that one, dude. I mean, you've been doing, you know, cartwheels, somersaults, everything we've asked you to do. You want to move this day to that day? Fine. This time to that time? Fine. You know, this way to that way? Great. Uh, You know what? But man, you're not going to overcome this one. And the point that I make is this. Personally, I had a pretty good idea that that was the case. These guys just weren't interested in spiritual things. They wouldn't come no matter what. But... The friend who was struggling with trying to figure out a way to reach his teammates for the Lord, he needed to go through that process to begin to identify the fact that, you know what, those are just excuses. These guys have no interest. 
I thought, man, you know what? That's a lot of work to get to that point. But our relationship in the last 20 years has been as solid as can be. And I love him as a brother and he loves me and he realized because you know what happened after that? 70% of the people that came were black because that was a percentage of those that playing in the NFL. And our friends that we developed, it was a great time of ministry because we were able to overcome obstacles, cultural and racial obstacles that none of us had ever had an opportunity to sit down in a room. One of our closest friends to this day confessed to me that he had never had until he met us, Linda and I, a white friend because of the area that they grew up in. They didn't trust white people. And you know what? I told them, I don't trust white people. Because uh, I know a lot of them. And I even got a better, you know, I even got a better basis to base that decision. But, but you know, and, and they left their children with us while he and his wife went on vacation. And it was just like, you know, it was awesome. And I just talked to him this week. And, he's, and, he's, and, he, and he feels God has led him to start a church in the, outside of the Atlanta area. And man, I am like fired up because I've seen what God has done one by one, those kind of stories, because they're real people whose lives, you know, we've been involved with, who've touched our lives as well. And, uh, you know, and sometimes you got to compromise to expose the truth. And, and, and I'm learning in life that, man, you know what, sometimes it seems like a lot of work to get to that point. And man, you know what, and we all know what the motivation is, but hey, you got to do what you got to do because once it's exposed, what you're going to find out is, guess what? These people hated Paul anyway. He compromised. He did exactly what he was supposed to do. He, he, you know, he, he, and the reason that he did it, and I'm going to share with you some reasons as we wrap all this together because they're critical and they're important as to why would he compromise in this area. First reason he compromised is because you know, we know that he loved the Jewish people. And he would have did anything to reach his fellow countrymen for the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, he wrote to the Romans, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying and my conscience confirms in the spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race. He said, you know what? If I could exchange my eternity and be damned and condemned to hell so that every person that I love could go to heaven and be with the Lord... I would be willing to make that sacrifice. It's not, one that it's, an, it's not one that's an option for any of us, but it shows you his heart and his love for people. How about you? Would you be willing for the love of the person in your life to say, Lord, I would rather spend eternity in hell if it means that that person could come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Man, it's powerful. It's powerful. He loved his fellow countrymen and he also wanted a united church. And the thing that's powerful about that is this. That he wanted a church that was filled with Jews and Gentiles. He wanted a church that was filled with white people and black people and brown people and red people and Asian people. He wanted a church that was harmonious, that was one in Christ. Because when we can get away from all of those dividing things in our life, he wanted a church that was filled with poor people and rich people. He wanted a church that was filled with educated people and, and, and uneducated people from the world's perspective. He wanted a cross-section of humanity because when you've got a, a church that's united like that, it is a powerful force for the world to reckon with. It's a powerful statement for a black man and a white man to stand together in segregated areas of this country and say that, you know what? We are one in the Lord Jesus Christ. And to hug that man as a brother in Christ... Man, the world hates it. 
Because I'll tell you something that I've learned about racism. Racism is part of sin nature. There's no place, there's no place for it in the kingdom of God. But divisiveness, envy, anger and hatred and resentment, that's all true of those who have not come to faith in Christ because we're to lay that all aside. Putting aside all malice and anger and hatred and resentment and be kind and, and considerate to one another, forgiving one another just as God in Christ has forgiven us. Some of us need to ask God to forgive us for some of the anger and the hatred that we have towards others. We need to give it up. We need to let God just remove that from our heart so that we can be an effective witness and tool and testimony to the world around us that we are born again and we're in Christ and old things pass away and all things become new. What can we learn from Paul's act of compromise number one? In our moments of highest spiritual motivation, we need to be especially, we need to especially beware of error or bad judgment. In our moments of highest spiritual motivation, we need to be very careful at that point of errors and bad judgment. Let me give you an example. Several years ago when I first had come to faith in Jesus Christ, I was invited to go to a breakfast, a businessman's breakfast, where a local business, a prominent local business person was going to come and share his testimony. For those of you who don't know what testimony means, it's very simply this, how that person came to realize, according to the word of God, that they were sinners separated from God, condemned before God, that they had a need to be forgiven, and that they needed a savior. They would come, and, and, and at that point, when they recognize they're sinners, you turn from sin, you turn to God, and you trust in God's provision for sin, the Lord Jesus Christ, His death on the cross, the power of His resurrection, and you receive Him as your personal Savior. Intellect, emotion, and volition, will. All of it tied together. Intellectually, we believe what we understand. Emotionally, we're broken by sin. And volitionally, we receive Him as our Savior. The whole person is saved when we come to that point. If any man's born again, he's a new creature. Giving a testimony is explaining how that happens in one person's life. This man is invited, prominent local business person. He comes and he stands up and he begins to share and this is how it all starts out. I just want to tell you guys that, you know, basically my routine is this. You know, I get up, I go to work in the morning. As I go into my office, the first thing I do is I kneel before a statue of St. Joseph and I pray that he'll give me a good day. Oh! Oh! There is only one mediator between man and God, and that's the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We don't go through other people to get to God. We have direct access to Him. We can go boldly with confidence before the throne of grace. Those of us who have genuinely come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we don't have to go through a middle person. That's how that disastrous morning started. And it didn't get any better from there. And everybody's looking around at the room trying to find the guy who invited this guy. And the guy who had a clothes, man, he had some work to do. Because first he had to share the gospel with the guy who came. And at the same time, make sure no one else was confused by it. What a mess. I've been there. I've seen it. Because we live in a world of celebrity. I get people call me all the time. Ah, yes, I understand you're the chaplain to the angels. Yes, we need a speaker. I'm sorry, I can't recommend anybody at this time who can give a clear gospel presentation. It doesn't really matter. It does to me. Goodbye. What are you, crazy? You're going to invite people to come to hear what? If you're going to use it as a platform to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ and give a clear testimony, great. You know what? And we're working towards that end. But there are certain times where, you know what? Hey, it's like I told you the story about the guy who was at a conference for the first time. and said, hey, brother, what do you got to say? And he said, man, I'm just happier in hell to be here. 
Well, you know, it's like he was, but you know, he wasn't quite ready to hit the speaking circuit yet. <laughs> learning and growing, brothers. You know, we just got to learn and grow. And so the, the, the point is this, you know what, in our zeal to reach people for the kingdom of God, we've got to be careful that we don't use bad judgment. In our zeal to reach people, we also need good judgment and to trust the Lord and to follow His leading. You know, the heart's right. want to reach others. Yet sometimes enthusiasm blurs sound judgment. The second thing is, we can be pressured toward questionable action by the sins of others. Now let me explain to you what I mean. I believe that the church in Jerusalem was a compromising church. They had not fully received the Gentiles as brothers and sisters in Christ. There was still a division of us versus them. Uh, they gladly took their money, but the politics of all of it was, since we took their money as a sign that we're trying to reach out and embrace them, then you go and you pay for these men and their vows so that you can show that you're coming. And all it was was a business deal. And, and, and what I have to say about that is this. There is no compromising truth, God's truth, biblical truth. If these men and their leadership in Jerusalem had been doing what God had called them to do, they would have been teaching truth and they would have defended Paul rather than come up with some lame compromise that didn't work anyway. They would have said, listen, we know Paul. And he's not telling them to forsake Moses. He's not telling them to forsake the law. He's not telling them to compromise anything. But you need to understand, because we've already had this meeting, and it was in Jerusalem, Acts 15. We've already had the Council of Jerusalem. And if you remember, we've already agreed to the fact that Gentiles don't have to become Jews first in order to come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul wasn't teaching that. You people were wrong, and we're going to confront you face to face. That is not what was happening. They should have been teaching truth, but they didn't, and they compromised. And we've got to be careful that we're not led to do things by people who are not right before God. Their sin led Paul to do something that I know that he would have said, you know what, Let me just, let's teach truth here because you people are ignorant of spiritual truth. We need a good old-fashioned Bible study around here. So that people understand truth. Because you wouldn't be asking me to do this if you knew what you were talking about. But because of his love for people, he was willing to compromise and he was torn between the two. And he was trying to, and what he ultimately did was he exposed the same thing that we exposed when we said, Hey, this isn't about white or black. This is about spiritual truth. And people that want to hear truth will come whether you're green, pink, purple, if you teach the word of God. That's not what this is about. But Paul had to go through all the, 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 uh, the commotion and the motions of all of it to be able to identify to them that, hey, you know what? We need to expose what's really going on around here because people don't see it for what it is. Third thing, and finally, is this. We need to have hearts that because of our compassion for people and for God's glory, we're willing to run the risk of making stupid decisions. And that's a tough one. Because so many of us are afraid to make a wrong decision, we make no decisions. And when it comes to making no decisions for the kingdom of God, that is a wrong decision. Because God has called us and entrusted us with the greatest message the world can ever hear. 
that even despite ourselves, God loves us anyway. Even though we're in rebellion against God, even though there is none of us righteous, there's nothing good in any one of us, that God loves us anyway. And He sent His only begotten Son to this world that whosoever would believe upon Him would not perish but have everlasting life. In that passage in Luke 19, verses 1 through 10, Jesus said, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. We were all lost in a historic moment in time when Adam chose to rebel against God and turn from God. Sin entered the world, and with sin came death. Every person is born into this world spiritually dead and separated from God. But God still loves us anyway. I don't understand how great a love that is. I can't describe because Paul says it best. Who can describe this indescribable gift of God? That he would love us and send his son to die on our behalf. That whosoever would believe in him, sufficient for everybody, but applicable only to those. You may have heard that in your head. You may have even been broken about sin. But you may be sitting here today and you know what? And your heart still has not bent its knee, so to speak, before God and received him as your savior. I challenge you today to do that because today is the day of the Lord and you may not have another opportunity. If you hear him calling today, you need to trust in him as your Lord and Savior. I've heard it before. I felt bad about my sin, but there's one thing I've never done and that is I've never given my heart to the Lord Jesus Christ and received him as my Savior. Today is that day. See, Paul compromised because he wanted to reach people. He was willing to make a mistake. And as we see in this passage, it exposed the truth. Those people hated Paul because Paul loved the Lord Jesus Christ and was sold out to pleasing him. Never forget that this world is going to hate you if you love Jesus. But it doesn't change our mission. It doesn't change our purpose. And that is to glorify God in these earthly bodies. Father, we just thank you for your word. My prayer today is specifically for those who may be here that aren't even sure what this is all about. But they know they're not perfect. They know they fall short of God's standard of perfection. They know that if you'd ask them, hey, have you ever sinned? And even if they don't even know what sin is, they know that they've lied, they've cheated, they've stolen, they've done things they shouldn't have done. And the conscience, God, that you've given them has made them feel guilty and indicted them. Today they hear clearly that the standard, of perfe- the standard is perfection and that not one of us can claim to be perfect. God, we may be broken for our sin, but there's a sorrow, like Judas had, sorrow of being caught, sorrow of the consequences and the mess my life's in, sorrow that I've hurt other people even though I'm not really convinced that the things that I do are wrong. Oh, there's all kind of sorrow in the world, but there's only one sorrow that leads under repentance. That's a sorrow and a brokenness that we've offended a holy and righteous God. It's a sorrow and repentance that, you know what, because of our sin that God had to send, you sent your only begotten son to the cross to die a horrible death on our behalf. But we praise you and we thank you for his death and the power of his resurrection. And the only thing that's lacking in that heart today, Lord, is that they've never received you, the Lord Jesus Christ, as their Savior. I pray today that they understand the clarity of that message and that they would do so. God, you tell us that we are born again and born from above. It's a work of God, not of our own. It's a, it's a gift from God, not of our own work, so none of us could ever boast. God, if any man's in Christ, he's a new creature. All things pass away. All things become new. We've seen it lived out in the life of Paul, who used to be Saul of Tarsus, a man who hated the Lord Jesus Christ and hated spiritual truth. 
and did everything that he could to suppress it, even murdering those who would put their faith and trust in him. And now we see Paul, the great apostle, a man of tremendous humility that would even lay aside his own salvation if he could for that of those around him, that they could come to know Christ and him crucified. Lord, help us to have that kind of love for others. Help us not to look at people as statistics or nameless faces, but as individuals whose lives can be touched by the gospel of grace. So, Lord, we just thank you. We praise you that you love us, and we don't understand it, this inexpressible gift, this, this gift that there's no words that can even summarize what you've done. But we realize and we see the evidence of it and the truth of many lives who have been born again and the difference that we see today. People who are walking in a manner worthy of their calling. God, may you, may, may you convict us that know you to become people who are sold out to pleasing you, an audience of one. And we just thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.